Thank you so much, Reese. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Gordon. Darlene, can you hear me? Sweet. Um, I was told to make sure that Darlene could hear me. So, all right. Um, so I think uh, I'm, I'm doing a, a presentation today, and it's on uh, my favorite story in the Bible, my favorite story of Jesus, and it is the cleansing of the temple. Um, and uh, yeah, go ahead, Trudy. So Pete put in a slide at the beginning of my presentation that I haven't read yet, but he wanted me to read it before I started. So this is a new one to me. Okay. Uh, hey, crosswalkers. The guy who is reading this is completely ignorant on the topic of theology and many other things. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Um, the only reason he's up here today is I'm recovering from my surgery, and who wants to watch another boring video? Am I right? Okay. So just to be sure, um, take everything that he says with a very large helping of salt and address any complaints to him directly, not to me. So I'll stick around after the service if you want to complain. Uh, just like I wash my hands of what you're about to hear, as Gordon has never even bothered to preview this with me. That's true. Um, rest assured, I am watching on the live stream, and if things really go off the rails, I will call Dar and instruct her to cut the feed. <laughs> the rest of you are on your own. Gordon, thanks for stepping up. You got this via con Dios, Pete. All right, thanks, buddy. I love you. I'm not gonna let you down. Um, all right, so obviously Pete didn't write that. Uh, I did, and uh, you can tell that I wrote it because there's that line about uh, who wants to watch another boring video. We all know that Pete loves boring videos. Um, but uh, while I did write this, I, I also have to say that uh, I do believe that it was divinely inspired because I think it's really important to God that you know that I have no business talking to you today, okay? <laughs> I am not an expert, and everything that I'm going to say to you today is simply my opinion. It is how this story makes me feel. And if that resonates with you, great, but I am by no means telling you how you should feel about the story, right? And I'm also going to caution you that I am going to touch on something that might be sensitive to people who grew up in a traditional form of the faith. And that's specifically, oh, speaking of which, I should start a stopwatch so I don't bore you guys. Um, and that is that Jesus, for many people in their tradition, is thought to be perfect and flawless. And there's some reasons for that, like uh, he's fully incarnate uh, with God. He is both God and the Son of God at the same time. Uh, there's this thing called substitutionary atonement, which we'll kind of touch on later. And if you were brought up in that tradition, I may some, say some things today that are going to ruffle your feathers. And I apologize in advance, but if we get to that point and your feathers are ruffled, just tune me out, okay? <laughs> it's totally fine. Pull out your phone, Candy Crush, whatever. <clears throat> all right. So the reason that we're all here today is certainly not to listen to me. The reason that we're all here today is because we want to find a way in life to move forward and do the right thing. Go ahead and hit it, Trudy. Sorry, no, just hit this 
out of door. I'm working. I'm working. Doctor, work, doctor. This is the mayor talking. All right. All right. Doctor. Come on. What? What? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. All right. That's a clip. The doctor and Mookie from uh, one of my favorite movies called Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. If you've never seen it, I highly encourage you to watch it. Every time I watch it, it came out in 1989. Every time I watch it, uh, I view the film differently. Uh, my opinion of what happened in that film has changed every time I've watched it since 1989. And the film hasn't changed. I've changed. And it's kind of the same thing with this story. Every time I read this story in the Bible about Jesus, my opinion of the story changes. So I want to set the scene for us a little bit. Um, when we think about this, this story is unique. Oh, by the way, in the, in the intro question, um, raise your hand. Who are the Bible nerds among us that remember a story from the Bible that's in all four Gospels? Anyone? Bueller? Right there in the back? Do, do you know one specifically? Feeding of the crowd, right? Okay. Anybody else remember a story that's in all four Gospels? This is one of them, correct. This is one of them. There aren't that many, believe it or not. A lot of like the greatest hit stories of Jesus, they only appear in one or maybe two of the Gospels, sometimes three, like not in John. John's a weird writer. Um, but, but this one appears in all four. And not only does it appear in all four, but there's a kind of an interesting um, aspect of Jesus that appears in this story. So in most stories of Jesus in the gospel, you kind of have one of two or, or both of these things kind of happen. One of the things that happens is Jesus teaches, right? He talks to us. He'll give us a parable. Um, he gets up and speaks a lot. And, and this Jesus, um, go ahead and hit it, Trudy reminds me of Robin Williams in uh, Dead Poet Society, right? He gets up on desks, he tells funny stories that kind of challenge the way we think, they kind of impact the status quo, he kind of uh, talks directly to authority in kind of a, a revolutionary and provocative way. The second thing that we see Jesus do a lot is he performs miracles, right? So he's got, it's kind of like Dumbledore Jesus. Um, and he's like, uh, hey, dead man, get up. And he uh, plays peekaboo with the blind man. And he's like, uh, loaves and fishes, loaves and fishes. And, uh, and, and, and that's a, an important thing. And through these miracles, he's, also, he's showing the power of God, but he also kind of teaches us through these miracles that he performs. But in this story, the focus is not really on his teaching. There's some teaching in it, but it's, it's actually not about what he says so much. And he, he kind of performs a little bit of a miracle in this one, but really the miracle is that he doesn't get arrested. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So we see a third Jesus in this story, hit it Trudy, and that's action Jesus, okay? And I think it makes, it makes me think of Keanu Reeves, all right? Um, so I, I really like that action Jesus shows up in this story. It's a kind of, it's a real different flavor of Jesus. So let's set the stage for um, the story that we're telling today. This is uh, the second temple of Jerusalem. It's also known as King Herod's temple, okay? And the actual sacred temple part is that um, it's a little raised box in the middle there. And you see this big wall on the outside? Inside that wall is what's referred to as the court of the Gentiles. And that's where this story takes place. This, 
The story doesn't take place inside that little box. It takes place in this giant kind of open plaza, open air mall, if you will, outside the temple. And we all are probably familiar at some point with this, with this story. This, this mall here is filled with people at this time. This story takes place during Passover. And Passover, and during Passover, there's like 100,000 people that are making this pilgrimage to this temple. And they're not necessarily all there at once, but there's several thousand people in there at any given time during this, when the story takes place. And not only are these pilgrims there, but there are people there that are doing some money exchanging, right? And they're doing money exchanging for two reasons. One, these pilgrims are coming from all over kind of the Jewish diaspora at that time, and they have their own currency, right? So just like you would have kind of a currency exchange at an airport, there's some of that kind of commerce, basic commerce that needs to happen. But also, at the temple, you're only allowed to spend holy money because they don't want to profane the temple with like the face of a ruler from somewhere else or, or money that is not considered, that is considered unclean, right? Well, then it kind of raises the question, what do you need money for? And they need money because the tradition is to make an animal sacrifice. That's what, that's what you're coming here to do. You're coming here to sacrifice an animal and this animal is supposed to kind of carry your prayers and wishes to God, that God's going to pass you over, that God is going to bless you, right? And they have doves and they have cattle and sheep and all manner of animals. And the wealthier you are, the bigger the animal, maybe the more favor you're going to curry with God. But all of this is happening and it's perfectly normal to the people who attend church here, the people who are kind of coming from all over the place during this time. It would be like if we had the Napa Farmer's Market going on outside in our parking lot this morning. It's that normal to the people who live there, okay? So we're gonna take a look at uh, the scriptures now, and, and because it's kind of action Jesus that we're talking about, I want us to pay really attention, or really close attention to what the guy does. And so to kind of help us with that, I want us all to pretend that we're in the CNN newsroom. And I've got, I've got some live reporters that are going to help us out today. Um, and we're going to kind of go to them in the field and see, uh, see what they've got to tell us. So who uh, has spoken to the eyewitness Mark? Uh, sorry, uh, Luke. Let's start with Luke. Oh, look, it's my wife. <laughs> you, you, you can just do it from where you are. Oh, oh, should I do it from where I was? Yeah, because it'll be easier uh. to pass the microphone around. <laughs> All right, take two, take two. We're going... I'm just going to stand here. Going live. Uh, <clears throat> yes, yes. Uh, we are live. I spoke to a witness named Luke, and uh, he said that going into the temple, the suspect began to throw out everyone who had set up shop, and they were selling anything and everything. And he said, it is written in scripture, my house is a house of prayer. You have turned it into a religious bazaar. And from then on, the suspect is taught each day in the temple. The high priests, religion scholars, and the leaders of the people are trying their best to find a way to get rid of him. But with the people hanging on every word he says, they can't come up with anything. You heard it here first. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ann. Good field reporting. Um, so to, to sum up, Luke, um, we, we see that Jesus, uh, this Jesus guy is throwing everyone out. 
all those money changer people. He has set up camp in his teaching, which is really interesting. And in this gospel and another one, there's kind of a, like a little bit of an Occupy Wall Street moment that happens. He occupies a part of that big plaza, and obviously the people in charge want to kick him out, but so many people are paying attention to him that they can't find a way to do that without fear of repercussions. Um, he really hates the mall, apparently. He doesn't like shopping. Um, he has a problem with that. Um, but the people love him, and authorities, they fear him. So who has uh, spoken to Mark? Who has spoken to Mark? Carol has, all right. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> this is Carol reporting from CNN. I have spoken to Mark this morning. The suspect, Jesus, and his friends arrived at Jerusalem. Immediately on entering the temple, the suspect, Jesus, started throwing out everyone who set up shop there, buying and selling. He kicked over the tables of the bankers and the stalls of the pigeon merchants. He didn't even let anyone carry a basket through the temple. And then he taught them, quoting this text. My house was designated a house of prayer for the nations. You've turned it into a hangout for thieves. The high priests and religious scholars have heard what was going on and are plotting how they might get rid of him. They are panicking because the entire crowd was carried away by his teachings. Back to you, Gordon. Thank you, Carol. So, so Mark tells us that, uh, you know, this guy is, he's causing some serious unrest here, right? He's kicking over tables. He frees just the pigeons. I don't know what his beef is with all the other animals, but he frees pigeons. He hates bankers and no baskets. This is the really funny visual to me. If, if there's people kind of walking around with baskets because they're carrying their stuff here and there, and Jesus just walks up and knocks them out of their hand. Um, the crowd loves his teaching. We know this about him, that he's a pretty charismatic guy. And the authorities are nervous. Hmm, interesting. Mm -hmm. Some common themes are developing here. Who spoke to Matthew? All right, Mr. Nesbitt. This just in. <laughs> just in, yes. <laughs> the suspect Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And, in, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And the suspect Jesus replied, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Back to you in the studio. Thank you, Will. So Matthew tells us again. So he's, he's in there shaking things up, literally overturning tables. Again, with the pigeons. He really loves pigeons. He doesn't want anyone selling pigeons. Um, hates the money changers, money changers, bankers. We're going to hear the term loan sharks, I think, in a second. Um, and he does a little bit of uh, miracle stuff in this one. He, he heals uh, the lame and uh, the blind a little bit, but it's really not the focus of the story. Like, the miracle 
is not the focus of the story. All right, and last but not least, we've got a really kind of in-depth report on this that comes uh, from our buddy John. Um, you know, John loves to go deep on stuff like this. Uh, so let's hear it from uh, Lauren and John's perspective on this one. Good evening. <laughs> when the Passover feast celebrated each spring by the Jews was about to take place, the suspect, Jesus, traveled up to Jerusalem. He found the temple teeming with people selling cattle and sheep and doves. The loan sharks were also there in full strength. Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple. I'm sorry, one second, I gotta interrupt you there, uh, Lauren. Did I just hear the Prince of Peace made a weapon? Can you say that to me, that line again? Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple. Wow. Wow. Sorry, please continue. Stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. That's when his disciples remembered the scripture. Zeal for your house consumes me. But the Jews were upset. They asked, what credentials can you present to justify this? Jesus answered, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll put it back together. They were indignant. It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But Jesus was talking about his body as the temple. Later, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. They then put two and two together and believed both what was written in scripture and what Jesus had said. And that's the way it is. <laughs> June 4th, AD 33. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Walter Cronkite. Okay, um, so this one, this one's pretty shocking to me. They're all a little shocking when we start to think about it, right? If we think about this, this court of the Gentiles being a farmer's market just outside our church, someone acting like this is pretty shocking. And it's even more shocking to me when I think that it is Jesus who makes a weapon, chases out people, overturns tables, spills money, really adores birds again. I think that should be like a byline for him. Jesus Christ of well, Nazareth, bird lover, and really hates them all. And I don't blame him on that front. I don't like shopping either. So, but it's interesting to me. There, why, don't, why don't we talk about the inherent criminality in what he does? There are a lot of things on this list that if you and I did them back then or today, we would get in trouble for. And so it occurred to me, what if I made a list of them really quick and I sent them to the DA's office? <laughs> so I did that. And our good friend, uh, Nicole Noonan Miller, who's not able to be with us today, uh, she analyzed what our eyewitnesses um, said, and this is what she came up with. Uh, here are my thoughts on that rascal Jesus. If he were to engage in these shenanigans in Napa in 2023, he would be charged as follows. 
Count one, trespass to interfere with lawful business in violation of Penal Code Section 602K, a misdemeanor. Count two, vandalism in violation of Penal Code Section 594, likely a felony, depending on the extent of the damage, probably multiple counts of vandalism and there are multiple victims. Count three, disturbing the peace in violation of Penal Code Section 415, a misdemeanor. Count four, assault in violation of Penal Code Section 240, a misdemeanor. Again, multiple counts of multiple victims. Count five, battery in violation of Penal Code Section 242, a misdemeanor, probably a felony, depending on if anyone was seriously injured. Again, multiple counts if multiple victims. Last but not least, count five, Six, sorry, aiding and abetting in grand theft in violation of Penal Code Section 487, a felony. Our buddy Jesus is a multiple felon. And if we think about it, if we think about what the scene is like, you saw how big that court of Gentiles was. There's thousands of people in there right now. When he's overturning these tables and money is just kind of pouring all over the floor and wild animals are now just kind of running willy-nilly, what do we think those thousands of people do? Do they just stand there and watch? Do they step back? Or are these rather poor people taking the money? Of course they are. Are they taking the animals because they want to eat them? Of course they are. Jesus starts a riot. A riot. The Prince of Peace? This story blows my mind. That's true, and probably people. He makes that whip for a reason. He makes the weapon for a reason, to use it. What do we do with this? Why do we follow this guy? That's the question. Did Jesus the felon do the right thing? Who was brought up with this story in church growing up? Anyone? Yeah? So real quick, what, what were you told about this? Why is this okay? Anyone? Yeah, sure, mom, good assist. The wrong thing for the right reasons. The wrong thing for the right reasons. That, that, is a, that is a really good take on it. We're gonna get into that pretty deep. That wasn't one of the traditional things that was taught to me. There were, there were two kind of main things that were taught to me about this story. The first, the first thing that was taught to me consistently was to kind of try to downplay the violence here, right? That we downplay the violence, we say things like um, street theater is a term that I've heard a lot. I'm a former actor. Um, street theater implies like a, a farce, something that's not real or performative, and at the very least, the person doing the overturning of the tables and the person whose small business that he is ruining and disrupting are gonna be on the same page about that. That's what the theater part implies to me, where he's trying to make a statement of some kind. He very well might be trying to make a statement here. In fact, he's definitely trying to make a statement, but he does so at the expense of those people in the court of the Gentiles. 
The other thing that I'm often taught about here is, and he talks about this a little bit in some translations, is the notion that this is his father's house, right? And because he is the son of God, because he is incarnate of God, because he is God himself, he has the authority to do this kind of thing in the temple. And that logic bugs me a little bit. Because if Anne and I sit down to dinner at home, Anne's my wife, by the way, if Anne and I sit down to dinner and she says to me, hey, I want steak for dinner, and I say, no, I made chicken, and she flips the table, that's a little weird reaction, right? That's still kind of a strange reaction. It's our house. It's her table. She has every right to do it, but it's still weird that she does it. So those things have never they've never really resonated with me as an explanation for this behavior that makes sense. Not only that makes sense, but like inspires me to act like him. Is this what we're supposed to do when we see injustice, when things bother us? Are we supposed to go around flipping tables, making weapons, and hitting people? How do I reconcile that, right? So next, Trudy. Well, here's some things I know about Jesus. One, he is absolutely aflame with the love of God. He is deeply, deeply passionate about the love of God. He is completely transformed by it. It oozes out of his pores. He is passionate that God's love is for everyone. And that leads me to the second point, Trudy, that he wages a campaign against injustice. His entire life is actually this campaign against injustice. Whenever he sees a barrier to God's love, he gets a kind of feisty about it. This is one of the only times when we see him physically do something, but he talks about this a lot. He talks about it a lot. And in this, in this scenario, what is the injustice here, right? What's the injustice about the farmer's market outside? Is that this system, the system that is perfectly legal and considered to be perfectly normal by everyone at the temple, has created a barrier between the love of God and the people. It requires you to do something. It requires you to make this sacrifice. It requires you to deal with money, to access the love of God. And Jesus comes to smash through that barrier. And when he sees this injustice, he obviously is getting a little angry. The guy is mad. But there's a third thing that I feel never really gets talked about that much that seems so obvious to me, and we don't want to confront it because it means that he's probably not perfect. And it means that he's kind of human. And that is, Trudy, that he had a bad day. 
And we can laugh about it because what's the thought of Jesus having a bad day, right? But if we think about the context of this bad day, it's pretty bad. <laughs> because what happened right before this story is Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? And he pulls off this amazing social media PR stunt, hashtag Jesus is my Messiah, and he's like, I'm gonna come into town on this colt, this donkey, and I'm really gonna start to subvert people's idea of what this Messiah is supposed to be. And I think he is a little overwhelmed by the response. At this moment, this Palm Sunday is the beginning of kind of the Passion Week that re leads up to his crucifixion, right? And here at, at, at the temple, it's kind of the second big thing that happens. And I think for the first time at Palm Sunday, the light of the world as he knows it is now on him. He is completely in the spotlight. And after that incident, like other leaders that we've had in history, he starts being investigated, not just by the Jewish authority, but certainly after this incident, the Roman authority as well. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with all of a sudden becoming public enemy number one, right? Think of the pressure of that. And not only that, think of all of the people on Palm Sunday that he knows he's going to disappoint. Because when they're saying that he's the son of David and they're saying Hosanna in the highest and they're throwing their coats down and waving the palms, they think that he's coming there to bring the sword to liberate them. And that's not what he's there to do. And I think when he arrives at the temple, he's feeling that pressure and he sees this injustice and I think he has a bad day. Is, it, is he motivated? Is his motivation pure? Is his motivation coming from a place of love? Absolutely. Absolutely. But is what he does the right thing? I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is that figuring out what the right thing is is mostly hard. And that's just true in life. And I love him for this. I love that he makes a mistake because I know a guy who makes a lot of mistakes. I know a guy who lashes out in anger sometimes when I have a short fuse because of something that had nothing to do with you, but it's my day leading up to that point. I know what that's like. And this story makes him human for me. And sometimes that bothers people. Sometimes that bothers people. But for me, for me, I love this human Jesus. Because the guy who's perfect all the time who performs miracles, who's an amazing teacher, how can I ever hope to be that? I call myself a Christian, we call ourselves a Christian, that means we're supposed to follow in the footsteps of this guy. That's an ideal that seems so intimidating to me. 
But when I see him make a mistake, that for me is a moment where I connect with him. And it's moving to me. Doing the right thing is hard. We can all have a bad day. And it's weird to think about kind of an inherent hypocrisy in him in this moment a little bit. Like, he loves the tax man, right? We got lots of stories about him talking about tax man. In fact, earlier in one of the Gospels, is, I think it's John, is the Zacchaeus story. But he's got beef with money changers. Why? Because he feels the injustice of this barrier to God is so great. It's hard. It's hard. This is some, it's hard for us to wrestle with these things. So we're going to play a little Where's Waldo, but we'll call it Where's Jesus. Where's Jesus in this picture? This is here in Napa. This is the Women's March. Look, the litmus test for me is, do we see the love of God? Do we see a fight against an injustice that is a barrier to this love of God? If we see these two things, we kind of know where Jesus is. Here's another one. This is, my favorite, this is one of my favorite photographs of all time. Um, this actually happened in downtown Napa during the uh, Black Lives Matter march. This is the police chief um, in Napa taking a knee in front of the protesters, showing them his solidarity with them because he's respectfully asking them to go a different route. That's all he's asking them to do. He's not asking them to disband. He's not asking them to go anywhere. Just take a different turn at the end of this street so it's not too disruptive to the traffic that's going on that day. And they respond, they, they respond to each other. There's actually a dialogue that is happening in this one simple act of a black police chief taking a knee. I love this photograph. It's, one of, it's an incredibly powerful image. I told you I was going to mess with you today. Well, I'm probably not going to mess with you any more than this photo. Where's Jesus in this picture? Do we see the love of God in the insurrection on January 6th? Do we see people raging against an injustice that prevents them from accessing the love of God? Not all protests are the same. This one's a bit of a layup. Obviously, we all know who this man is. I grew up in, uh, outside DC, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I've spent a lot of time in the steps of the Lincoln Memorial by myself, on field trips, and for me personally, I love this man. I've never met him. He died almost 10 years before I was born, but I love him. And the tricky bit about this photo is the longer I look at it, the angrier I get. Because they took him from me. They took him from me. When I say they, I don't mean the man who murdered him. I mean the people who cheered when it happened. They took him from me. I never got to hear his voice. I never got to meet him. They took him from me. 
And 50 years later, on a street in middle of town, in broad daylight, people stood on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds, which is 100 times longer than I am comfortable talking to you about it. Where's Jesus in that picture? Where is Jesus in that picture? And when I think of what the answer is, I only have one question. Was he having a good day or was he having a bad one? Because we all know what good day Jesus looks like. We all know that good day Jesus doesn't set fire to things. We all know that good day Jesus doesn't break glass and, and loot things. But bad day Jesus? Bad day Jesus was a felon. He was a felon who was consumed with the love of God and was raging against injustice. This is hard stuff. It's hard to know how to do the right thing. The one truth that I take away from it is that Jesus didn't come to deliver us from this hard decision, from this hard truth. He came to stand next to us arm in arm as we face them together. together. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, I apologize if I've upset you today. I apologize to anyone in the room that I may have upset or made in, feel insecure about their perfect Jesus. But I gotta tell you that I love his imperfection here. I love that there are injustices in the world that make him angry. And I love that he's flawed in a way that makes me relate to him as a human being. And that even in his flaws, he inspires me to be better to love more, to seek that hope, to make justice a reality. So if we can all pray this Lord's Prayer together, Trudy, the version that we pray here at Crosswalk. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who art here and everywhere, thy divine commonwealth come. Thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world 
where mutual grace and respect abound, modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work to which we are called. Amen, and may it be so. Have a great week, everybody. If you want to come yell at me, I'll be right here.